0: Provincial State of Mind with me, Jeff Neville, Tom Savage and Owen Harrison. This is a podcast that focuses completely on the four provincial teams in regards both the URC and European competitions. We discuss what happened the previous weekend and what we can expect from each province in their upcoming games, unless of course you're Leinster who haven't played since December 11th, but we'll get to that in a few minutes. So Owen, the fog is starting to lift after what was kind of a bleak weekend. How was your week going?
1: My week's not too bad. Um, I suppose uh, even though it was maybe disappointing as a as a fan as a Munster fan certainly anyway with the the result it was great to actually have rugby to be able to watch um and it was that was at least some bright spark towards the week but the, the result and the performance which we'll get into in a bit wasn't the best but uh, certainly a good week for Connacht anyway yeah good week for Connacht Tom, I heard you've gone cold turkey off those jellies from
0: last week uh, how are you feeling
2: uh pretty bad actually I really regret doing it. It's not that I'm addicted to the jellies. I just really, really like them and don't ever want to stop eating them. So I think I'm just going to just start it back up again.
0: Right. Well, we won't get into the jelly dog like last week because unlike last week, we actually have a bit of rugby to talk about. Um, we're going to jump in first off with Connacht, as always, who won 10-8 at home to Munster. A game for the purists would be a way of describing it if we wanted to be nice, I think it's fair to say. And... Um, like, personally, like, I had a one-year-old teething child whose bedtime was seven o'clock, and that probably wasn't even the worst part of my night, if that makes sense. Um, it was a game, I think it's fair to say, that was just, well, I don't know, just probably just a dirty old game. Um, Owen, what did you think of it?
1: Yeah, I, as you say, it was an ugly game for... The neutral, I think, is the the best way of putting it. It was a a really committed game from two sides, I thought, who sort of balanced each other out, countered each other, particularly with the defences on top. I thought, you know, um, neither team was allowed to play the way they wanted to. We didn't see from Connacht their normal sort of flow in attack and Munster were just unable to get any sort of attacking cohesion together. So it it really came down to, I think, what we talked a little bit about in the preview last week around sort of who could win the collisions and could Connacht get their their Maldi organized. And I think in both cases, Connacht came out on top of those. I thought they were very physical in what they were trying to do. They were very committed in their sort of their 3-2 pod system that they use. They got a lot of strong runners going over the gain line, and while they weren't necessarily making huge inroads into it, they were just doing enough to allow Carthy with the time and, and Fitzgerald to to bring in their kicking game. And I thought a lot of credit really has to go to um, <clears throat> the new Connacht forwards coach. And um, in terms of them, in terms of their mouldy, I thought it was absolutely fantastic. There were times they started to concede ground, but there was nothing there that was killing them. Completely, they were able to get in and pin on both sides and stop Munster being effective with their mall. And they were able to make big stops when it counted. Tom, we know you love
0: collisions and we, we kind of talk about it every week. But coming back to that mall, D, Owen mentioned it there. If we go back a season ago, Connacht, it was probably one of Connacht's weaker parts of the games. I think it's fair to say their mall defense. But I mean, Munster didn't really get an inch out of them this week.
2: No, that that was a large part of where uh, Connor got the win from. Uh, you look at Munster's performance in general, we, we, will, we will get to that, but I think they'll be most disappointed with their work in the Mall, um, where I, I think you could say in general, when you look at the guys who Munster have had available over the last two seasons, three seasons, that they kind of punch above their weight, I think, for the most part in the Mall. But this game was one where they didn't get the bills they wanted, uh, they weren't able to get the forward momentum they wanted. Connacht did a great job in stuffing them, and I think that was a killer to what Munster were trying to do with a couple of uh with the way that Munster approached the game. Uh, those maul stops were absolutely massive, and I think that Connacht got the one decisive uh maul moment when you know I think Munster stepped, stopped them from close range six times, uh, and one time was the one when Connacht got their their try that was ultimately the winner. Um, that was a massive factor for Connacht, and uh, I, I think that we we will get into it. But when you look at the physicality Connacht showed in key areas, that was a fantastic win for them. Look, it, it was it was a it was a dour game. You know, we talk about a game for the purists. This was, and unless the purists are really into just awful games of rugby, then I, I think maybe that maybe that is what they're into. But there wasn't much there for the neutral. There was a lot of. Uh, a lot of niggle which uh, I felt took away from the game a small bit um, but you know when, when we look at the, the result Connacht will be delighted but I don't think either team played well actually looking back at it there were some good yeah. moments but you know I, I think it was a, a, a really good performance from Connacht in certain facets and certainly enough to win the game for them
0: I'm going, to, I'm going to actually jump in there Tom you said that I don't think either team will be happy with their performance and neither, even though Connacht won now, I went back there last night and I watched this game and I watched it with a Connacht hat on, like Connacht goggles, green goggles, green glasses, whatever way you want to put it. And I just kind of put myself in, in, a, in a Connacht fan shoes for, for the game. Now, the first thing, and you mentioned it there in a the niggle. I don't think the niggle, like there was probably too much. Yeah, I know what you're saying in that regard. But I have to say I absolutely loved the way Connacht just fronted up about everything. And there was times maybe it went overboard, don't get me wrong. But like they went out and we talked about Connacht playing against a bigger pack and, and how they manage against that. And we'll probably get to that in a minute. Back. But I absolutely love the way Connacht just says, there's absolutely no way we're taking a step backwards in anything. Um, but looking at the game itself, I think the phrase I kind of came up with myself is, if I'm a Connacht fan, I'm happy Connacht won, but I'm not happy with the win. Um, people might need to rewind there and, and hear that kind of a second time. As in, like, I, I if I was a kind of fan, I'd be happy that they won the game. But with the performance and with the win they had, I'd be thinking to myself, Jesus, like, we could have won that game a couple of times over. Um, I agree with Andy Friend there. He was talking about, you know, kind of winning dirty and grinding out a win. And we said it last week, you know, like, um, games like that, are the, and we mentioned it against Leicester, um, you know, games like that are the games that kind of have to learn to grind out to win. That's what great teams do is they grind out horrible wins by hook or by crook. And that's exactly what they did. But looking at the game, you know, they had 62% possession. They beat 13 defenders off 16 breaks through 12 offloads. They still conceded 13 penalties. And we'll mention, we'll talk about Munster's penalty count in a while, um, which was already, just don't get me wrong. But 13 penalties is still quite high uh, to concede in a game. Like, you know, if, if you're conceding 13 week in, week out, you're thinking, to yourself, Jesus, like, we need to clean this up big time. Um, I think they had in my eyes, watching the game, I think they had about eight kick- kickable penalties that they could have kicked. And, and it's very hard to play against a team who are just totting up the scoreboard three, six, nine and keeping going. Um, they only kicked one, and that was when they were down to 13 players. But yeah, for me, I like I just felt like their game management, especially at the end, um, at the end of the game, they had a you know, they were up by two, they had a very kickable penalty and decided to go for the corner. And I know they put the nail in the coffin. Um, and I know it was a it was a mall try that that won them the game ultimately. But two points up, a couple of minutes left, put it down, take your 60, 90 seconds, whatever it is, make it a five point game against a team that didn't fire a shot for 78 minutes or whatever it was. And I felt if it was me, like I probably would have. And I I know you could see Sammy Arnold, he was pointing at the post as well. And ultimately, they still won the game, so you can't complain. But for me, I just felt like as I was watching it as a Connacht fan, like it could have been won a couple of times over. Um, Owen, I don't know what you made of the game management at the end of the game, but for me, like I'm very much like within context, I'm very much a take your points man and, and like build up that score and
1: yeah, cup rugby, but I don't know what you thought about the end anyway. Well, look, I, I understand where you're coming from and in, I would generally agree with it in terms of, I think you keep the scoreboard ticking over and you take away the chance, particularly when you have someone like Ben Healy there who can potentially, you know, smash it from the halfway line or further. And, and sort of steal a win as he's done on a number of occasions but I can also understand what Connacht were trying to do because Munster could not generate go forward ball Munster could not sort of get territory out of it and I think they were looking at it they had maybe three, four minutes left towards the end they could take a kick use up a minute and maybe get the three points you know, there was a lot of talk from Andy Friend, etc., in the pre-match warm-ups, etc., about how strong the wind was and how it didn't look like that on television, etc. And I think the idea was kick it to the corner, not necessarily to go for the win, but it was literally just to deny Munster the chance. Because I think Connacht could have been fearful that if you go to a kickoff, you actually give Munster territory, and you sit it back into the Connacht 22. And you're putting the pressure back on Conop to try and get the exit and to try and work upfield again. And I think my my explanation of why they didn't go for that three is purely that they wanted to keep that territory in the Munster 22 and force Munster, who had no, had shown no intent, no ability to move the ball and get territory, and force them to actually play and do something. And in the end, I think it proved to be the right decision.
0: Yeah, but like I mean, forcing them to play at a two-point game or a five-point game—the game's still there to be won. They still have to force to play either way, but they're just forced to. Like, like you said, Ben Healy can kick it from the halfway line, but to score a try, you need to be on their try line, which they like they didn't even threaten. So yeah. in my in my eyes, like I'm very much like I'm with Sammy Ireland on this one. I'm very much take your points, Tom. I don't know what you think about it.
2: Uh, well, look, I, I think from a Connacht perspective, I think the biggest enemy for them once they were ahead was the clock. So, like, I think you try to, you know, keep the ball, keep the clock ticking and the ball standing still for as long as possible. For me, that would be a kick at goal. But, I mean, if we look at this game and, and look at how bad Munster were for the, for the vast majority of the game, if, Munster, if Ben Healy lands that penalty uh, in the middle of the second half and everything else still stays the same, uh, Munster win 11-10 and like you look at how little Munster played here um, I think Connor could come away and be look happy with the win like you said there but disappointed ultimately with the performance and that they weren't able to execute the opportunity that they had And you know again I think that you know the end game certainly from a management perspective I can see the merit of what you're saying there I'd lean more towards put the ball down on the tee and back your restart, you know, and, and look to try to, you know, basically, because I think most teams, I think you look at recently, kicking back to Munster off a restart isn't necessarily, you know, something that you'd, that you'd be overly concerned about at the moment, really. So, you know, I, I, I think from that perspective, because again, look, we look at that line out that went wrong for Connacht there. Like if Damien De doesn't boot that ball into touch, like Munster had a three on one with a lot of space on the outside there directly after that. That, that line out that went to stray from them down there so like that should have been a winner for Munster in the last two minutes maybe they would have got that off a restart as well but for, for me I probably would look to put that down you know cheese 90 seconds off the clock and uh, kick it literally right when the referee's about to tell you that it's a free kick the other way but you know I, I, I think ultimately like I think Connacht will learn a fair bit about how they manage that game uh, towards the end um, they learn a fair bit from it but yeah, I think ultimately they'll be disappointed with their performance overall, bar the win. I think they'll, with the possession, with the metrics they ran up, they should have run up comfortable winners.
0: Well, Connacht have a week off notice be coming anyway, and then they're they're uh, at home to the Tigers in the Champions Cup, which will be an interesting game. We'll probably chat more about that next week. But we kind of said last week, you know, three big games coming up for Connacht in a row, Munster being the first, then Tigers and Stad and you know how we'll probably define their season. First job done. And uh, we will chat about the Tigers now. Next week, before that game at home uh, in the Champions Cup, so we'll move on to Leinster. Leinster again had no game. Their last game they played was on December 11th. Um, I won't lie; it's kind of getting difficult to talk about Leinster these days because we're just <laughs> they just have no games. But what we said was we get our uh, questions in and we try and talk about those questions and everything like that. So, I mean, looking at the impact of COVID and their Champions Cup and, and the URC, you know, they're they're pushing a month now since they've played. Um, you know, it's it's we we we've talked about it the last three, four weeks. Like it's it must be incredibly difficult as a player not getting to showcase what you're able to do. As a squad not being able to showcase what you're able to achieve. As a coach and staff not being able to showcase the fruits of your labor, it is a very frustrating time for Leinster. Tom. How do you think internally as a squad they're dealing with these constant delays and constant postponements?
2: I'd say it's very frustrating. Like I, this week, actually, I actually asked Mike Haley during the press conference there from Munster on Tuesday about the difficulties that come with not being able to train or, or play. Like, what is that like? And he just said, like, it just makes it difficult to get back into the flow of training. Like little things like your timing, your kind of your full match sharpness—they're all things that kind of. If you're not training and you're not playing, it, it's like you're fresh, yes, but you do lose something on the other side. Of it. it does become a little bit difficult to to handle your uh your 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 top end your elite performance. You look at at, at teams in general, like at the top end, it's only that small few percentage points that that d- determine a lot of games at the top end. And if you are off by a small few percentage points here or there, if everybody's like that, you can all you can see very disjointed performances, very poor performances, and you can lose games against teams who have higher levels of that cohesion. So it'll be very, very difficult for, for Leinster to get back up to speed, but they're blessed in that they've got a, a core of, of world-class players who are incredibly good, uh, and I, I think that they'll be able to hit the ground running against regard of, of who they are because they have the power to 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 basically get them out of any real situation, certainly at this stage of the season. Oh, well,
0: and looking at Leinster's squad for next season, I mean they've signed on Furlong, Porter, Ringrose already. You know they they're already signed on deals, and you know there are three very good deals for for Leinster. Um, look looking at future signings and what they may look at. What areas do you think of their squad? They're gonna are they going to look to shore up uh, heading into next season?
1: Well, I think, you know, Leinster are in probably prime position in terms of recontracting. I mean, who wouldn't want to stay on with Leinster? You've you've the chance of silverware consistently year on year. You have, you know, pretty much if you break into the into the Leinster team, you're you're pretty much guaranteed you're in Ireland squads at this at this stage. So I think, you know, from that point of view, once you're there, it's a it's a matter of, you know can you make sure that you've you've got your the player happy in terms of their contract deal themselves and that sort of once you're within the ireland range of things that generally tends to happen so i think like you you look at it i think they've got probably as a club or a provincial side they've probably got the best front row in the world um, in ter- in terms of porter furlong and kelleher They've um, recontracted both of the, the props in that. Um, I think they're they're going to maybe, or they should try and look, depending on the IRFU sort of um, stipulations, at potentially a second row. And I, I think they they that's where they've struggled. I think in terms of the the tight five when they've when they've played the the bigger games, the shells, the, the Saracens over the last few years, they've struggled in that area. And I think they need another top-class player in with James Ryan in the second row. They've had the likes of Devin Toner, who's sort of easing towards retirement, we'll we'll call it, and you have guys like uh, Ross Mullaney stepping up um, that have have done jobs for them. But I don't think they're at that. And Ryan Baird hasn't developed into that 80-minute player yet. And I think that's what they need, is they need either Baird to come through and James Ryan to change his role slightly, or that they need, um, which we'll get on to later on in the questions, but I think they need someone in there with that that will allow it because they've got such depth and such quality elsewhere that I think that's potentially one of their biggest ones. And then outside of that, I think there's potentially it's more the fringe players that are going to be sort of they're going to be interested in recontracting because of the changes that we've talked about in terms of the URC, and there's no longer the game time and the guaranteed game time for the fringe players over the Autumn Internationals and the Six Nations. You're losing sort of nine games or so a season where you can can give out game time to fringe players and keep them happy, give them a chance to stake a claim for a sort of a starting spot in the first team. That's gone. So I think there's there's guys on the fringes. We've talked, I think, in the past about the likes of their problems in the back, or not problems, but their selection uh, issues in terms of the depth they have for things like open side. And I think maybe even someone like uh, Kieran Frawley, I think, could be a, a potential one there. You know, is he going to stay behind the likes of Ringrose and Henshaw and try and still push into the Ireland squad, or does he? Is he going to be sort of looking to make a move to try and get first team um, rugby somewhere else to try and make that? Because he's he's obviously got uh, into the frame, into the sort of the wider squad. But if he really thinks he can push through and wants to do that, I think he's going to have to sort of nail down a starting spot somewhere. You talked there about players
0: moving on, and Tom, I'm going to ask you this one: um, you know, you we we talk about players not getting a chance to showcase what they're able to do, and. You know, it's frustrating that they're not getting the minutes and stuff like that. But I mean, when you think about it as well, they need those minutes in order for at contract time, they can turn around and say, well, look what I did in this game. Look what I did in that game. Look what I did in the other game. And if they're not getting the minutes, if they're not showcasing what they're able to do, surely their value as a rugby player, and I don't mean like um, talent wise or anything like that. I mean, purely financially. Surely that comes into question as well, because the club can say, look, we want to sign you on for another two years or something like that, but we're only going to give you X amount compared to last year you were on Y, because you haven't shown us what you're able to do or you haven't had, well, it's not their fault, they haven't had the opportunity, but at the same time, you know, the, the club can say like, well, you're not playing all that much, you haven't exactly, you know, taken over from somebody else's role, so we're not going to offer you. Um, as much money as you were on or we're not going to increase your contract despite the fact that you're another year senior or whatever it may be do you think that not only these players not getting a chance to play and showcase their talent and getting minutes and stuff like that like how much of an impact does it have a contract time as well when renegotiating with the same club or with other clubs looking to
2: sign them too Massive for most players I would say but I would invert it a little bit too that for the club like, if you look at Leinster over the last five or six years, you look at some of the guys who they've missed out on, hasn't been a whole lot. Like, Tyg Byrne would be the biggest miss, really, I would say, for Leinster in the last five or six years. Like, you know, you look at Joy Carberry heading away as well, but that was more, that, that was a different kind of situation. You look at, at, at Leo Cullen and, and Leinster, they haven't had to really make any tough contract decisions, really, at, at, at Leinster, because you, you have that two-team, you know? you have your centrally contracted guys and the contract space they give you allows you to contract a load of other players that come out of your academy, which means that you get almost the full value of their academy they, they get every year. Now, in a situation like this, where every year, I mean, in the, in the last, we'll say three seasons ago, Leo Cullen could have turned to any younger player and said to them, look, other teams will be coming in looking to put an offering for you. They might be offering this, that or the other. But we will give you this, these minutes here. You will get to train with these guys. You get to live at home. You get to play for your home province. And you will get these games every, every, uh, every season in the Pro 14 or whatever else. And you know the extras. You know, well, if you play well there, you know, you'll get up and there's always injuries and there's always an opportunity to go up and blah, 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 blah. It's easy. That, that, that's an easy thing to sell. Now, though, it's quite a bit different uh, from a contracting perspective to sell to the player that they're going to be used in the next season or like in the next two seasons what can you realistically promise a younger player now with regards to you know URC minutes looking at this season even what is your what, what is the pitch you well we will put you on slightly less money cuz every everybody's cutting money the 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 contract values are going down all over the place so you're going to be on the same money but you're probably going to play that bit less and when you're playing that bit less as you've as you've said there all of a sudden it's grand, you know, you're, you're, you're thinking, well, I'm still at Leinster, still training away, still learning a lot. You know, you get the odd game, but your next contract then becomes a problem. Not the one you've just signed the one in two years time. Uh, where are you then? Like, where are you with regards to your Ireland, your Ireland chances? Because again, there, there, there isn't really, and there can't really be any loyalty in this game regards to your, 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 your contracting. Cause in two years time, like we'll say, if you're a, if you're a, a hooker at Leinster, say, if you're signing a deal now to stay on there, and you're kind of thinking, well, I'm third in the depth chart now, but you know what? I'm going to back myself in two years. I'm going to be like in the top one or two. But if you're looking at just just in the hooker position, you've got King Kelleher, who's what twenty two. You've got Dan Sheehan, Ronan, yeah, Ronan, yeah, or, or Ronan Kelleher, sorry, and 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 Dan Sheehan, both two very young guys. Now, uh, Ronan Kelleher is going to be on a central contract. I would say the next time he's up for re-signing any deal. Dan Sheehan is a guy who's going to be close to the same sort of terms, I would say. All of a sudden, you're two years down the track. Maybe you haven't played a whole load in that time. And now it's very difficult for you to go, well, look, I want to move somewhere else. But every everywhere else is moving on too. So if you don't sign for that club and they're looking for you, like we'll say, if Munster are looking for your Connacht or Ulster, like they'll move on. Like they will go and they'll sign someone else. So I think It'll, it'll end in a situation where, like Leinster have their, their top team, their centrally contracted team, but it'll become more difficult to keep the squad size that they've had for the last number of, of, of well, i maybe say even since 2014, 2015, it'll be difficult to keep that level of quality depth because it'll just be very difficult to, to budget, to, to keep those guys happy from, a, from your financial standpoint, but also from a minute standpoint. It's going to be very, very difficult to do that, and I think guys who might be on the bubble, uh, I think it was a own mentioned there, K- yeah, Kieran Frawley is a fella who might be looking at like, am I really gonna dislodge uh, Robbie Henshaw uh, from that twelve jersey, centrally contracted guy, you know, two-time tourists. tourist? I mean, probably not. So you're looking at then, well, in two years' time, if I sign a new deal, like, what's what are my prospects going to be like then? I'll be two years older. Who knows what injuries are going to happen. That's the decision these guys have to make. Like, It's not just about staying in the winning environment because I'm sure if there was enough minutes for everybody, they'd all stay. But that's the main issue for Leinster, I think, in the next couple of years is making sure they get the right guys because they always get the cream of the crop with regards to the guys that they produce. And that's really helped by getting everybody. I think there's going to be difficult uh, kind of who to keep and who to cut almost that they haven't had to make in ever, really, uh, not since the, the early or mid-2000s, I think. So that's something where I think that's going to be a, a, a tricky situation for Leinster coming up, but in a way a good kind of problem to have because you're picking, well, is it this quality player or that quality player? Because either way, you end up with a quality player. So I think it'll be very, very difficult uh, to keep you know all those balls in the air, but uh, it's going to be very interesting, I think, anyway.
0: Yeah, well, look, I mean, or Montpellier says, "I Leinster have no game now this weekend. Their next game is Montpellier on the 16th. So a bit like Connacht, we'll chat about that closer to the time. Uh, we move on to our next province. And it's one that has um, has been earmarked, I suppose, by me as one I just don't want to talk about, to be honest with you. But here we are. Um, Munster, as we said, lost 10-8 away to Connacht in what was and I don't think I'm being unfair and saying this, like I'm not one to throw the baby out with the bathwater or anything like that. And I'm not one to go, you know, off one bad win or off one bad loss or sorry, off one good win or off one bad loss to lose the plot of myself. But it is genuinely one of the worst games I've seen Monster play in a long time. I'm saying that as a fan. I'm saying that as someone who's watched the game back a couple of times and kind of struggled to understand what we were trying to do. Um, it was a game where the penalty count was through the roof. The pass count was not, and you're averaging less than three passes per penalty, and that ratio is bananas in anyone's language. Um, Owen, what do you make of the game as a whole from a Munster perspective?
1: Um, like you, very hard to take, <laughs> um, and I don't. The problem is, I don't think this is a once-off. So, and I, I think you, you, you've got, you've got to look back at the at the last four games. So you look, you look back at the performances over the last four games, you had the Ospreys away, which they lost, failed to really fire a shot. You had the whole COVID situation, and then they played Wasps with the youngsters. And that was a completely different team, a completely different approach to the game. And they got very lucky. There are circumstances that we've talked about in terms of, you know, COVID impact to Wasps, the red card, how they went on, and how the youngsters took to that game. But then you get into Cast, cast at Home, which, again, was a dour game, and now you've got Connacht. So I'm not necessarily buying into this was a once-off and a bad game. I'm I'm thinking this, this is a, a sort of a rooted problem in here. And I think you 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 talked about the penalty count. I think it was like seventeen or eighteen. With that, I think it was uh, twelve against, uh, or fifteen. Uh, they conceded fifteen against cast twelve against wasps, and I think another twelve or so, uh, maybe more against uh, ospreys. And all in all, I think it's they're averaging about fourteen penalties, in excess of fourteen penalties for in each of the last four matches. Like on a purely on a discipline side, that's not good enough. And you you start giving teams sort of either shots at goal or easy access and territory, um you're it's gonna you're gonna struggle particularly when your attack is just not functioning. And I think that's the worst part is that Munster have have a game plan that's there that's based on dominating teams up front. And when they can't do that for whatever reason, they struggle and there is no plan B. Like you talked about it there was 45 passes um I think half, nearly half of which came from Craig Casey as almost one-out passes. Um, you're looking then at there was only two plays where they had more than two passes. So there was two plays where they got three passes in. Like, that's shocking. Absolutely shocking. And I think it, it comes from a situation whereby I don't believe the players are this bad. right? I, I really don't well, believe it well, is. Well,
0: well, you'd be right. Like I mean, when you look at that back line, I mean, you start off at 9, you go through to 10. Like, they're both very good players. You've Damien Delende, who's a World Cup winner at 12. You've Chris Farrell at 13, who's a fantastic footballer. You've Andrew Conway on one wing. You've Shane Dale, who's a brilliant footballer. On, like, they're not bad players. So you're right in saying that.
1: Right. And, like, they're not bad players. And I'm not saying it's a bad coaching team either. Right? And I'm not saying that. But what's happening is either the players don't understand it, either the tactics are very poor, or the coaches can't get the tactics across to the players. So it's it's one of those things, and something has to change very quickly. Now I know we're going to get change when it comes in, sort of with Van Graan and Larkham going. But to be honest with you, if they don't change something soon, we and we get a continuation of the Ospreys and cast and this monster are going to struggle to win. Not only their sort of seventy or eighty percent of the games that they expect to win per season to meet that they're going to struggle to to get into Europe next season if things don't change, and something has to change. Now, when we've we've heard about sort of Roundtree and talks about clear the air, you know, talks this week in training and stuff like that, but something has to change fundamentally. Munster went into that game, and, like, they couldn't adapt to the referee. I don't think they managed the referee properly. The the, the breakdown was a mess on both sides. I'm, I'm not saying the referee... Favoring anyone, I'm just saying it was messy. Defenses were well on top. I don't think Jack O'Donohue managed the ref very well at all. I think um, Munster made some strange decisions. when camped in the in the the Connacht um, 22 just before halftime, where they continually went for that, looking almost for a second yellow card, looking for that rather than necessarily. Looking to take points and convert it, and I know you can talk about trying to, you know, that's the defining moment. But once they got that, and or once Connacht got that out, that was the end of it. And and Munster had nearly lost the game at that point. And um, and for me, it was just so disappointing. Not that, and I've heard some Connacht fans talking about, it, you know, it's all oh, Munster aren't happy because they lost to Connacht. It's to me, it's not about losing to Connacht or losing to anyone. It's the manner of the defeat. And you spoke about it earlier. <clears throat> I can put up with Munster teams losing and things like that as long as I see that there's something there that they gave it everything. And I'm not sure I'm seeing that at the moment. And it used to be said that Munster were better than the sum of their parts. At the moment, it looks like they're less than the sum of their parts. And that's the most depressing. Tom, you said there during the week that you have your own metrics to measure a
0: game. And when you looked at this game, it's not what you expect from a Munster team. Now, I'm pretty much on the same path as on there. If Munster lose, but they go out swinging, right? there's not, and there's nothing I can say about the performance if I say, geez, they gave it everything, but they lost. Like No problem with that. Genuinely, absolutely none. But after this game, it didn't seem like... The, well, they didn't fire a shot. I think that's fair to say.
2: No, they didn't. And I, I think you know my measurements of, of, of games where I try to gauge intent as much as possible i try to look at how many passes per carry you make because you can look at rocks and stuff like that but a rock often is part, mostly defensive action you know because you don't plan to have a rock if you're looking to go for a break and, and somebody tackles you and when we lost the ospreys uh, there's the royal we again um uh, very but, professional here yeah <laughs> uh, in in, late, uh, in in the last game in october the pass per carry ratio was actually quite high um, when Munster lost to Leinster in December of was it 2019, 2020, uh, a dour game, the pass per carry ratio was one. One pass for every carry, more or less. And that was a very dour game. This game measured 0.76 on that metric. Cast two weeks ago in Tolman Park measured 0.71. And cast were played the, the, the least amount of rugby I've seen and Monster weren't far away from that, 0.5% um, away based on that. It's a, a, it's a thing I use to illustrate. It's not a hard and fast thing, but it illustrates to me intent. You don't go into a game and accidentally only throw 45 passes. You just don't. Like, you, that like. is a, a decision to go into a game with that plan. I actually think Munster did have a plan in this game. I, th- I think that the plan was an ultra-conservative game that was based on hammering Connacht in possession when they had possession, which I think Munster did relatively well. And then taking any opportunities you get off the lineout. Munster are, are if, you, if you want to look at style, I think Munster are a lineout mall team. That's what Munster, I, I think, are trying to be. You look at other teams who might be counter-attacking teams or other teams who might be more complete. That's where Munster are looking to uh, min-max all of the, the the resources into that area of the game. The line-out uh, for Munster, I think, in the, in the URC is rated as the best in the, the league at the moment for completion. You look at the um, the what Munster intended to do, I feel, was soak up Connacht in defence, Trade with them through your kicking, Ben Healy, kicking long, you know, trying to forcing Connacht to kick on your terms to an extent, because Connacht liked to kick the ball as well. Um, but then when it came down to actually executing those moments in the lineout, lost every encounter decisively and ended up, as a result, playing very little rugby. You look at that, uh, that intercept that happened there towards the, you know, the start of the second half. Craig Casey looked to try and find uh, Jack O'Donoghue uh, on the on the the back on the blind touchline. That was a set move, like that was a, that was a set piece. They call that, and that's if you look at those moments. If that's not an intercept, which again it was always going to be, because you look at the numbers that are there. Connacht were numbers up on that on, on, on that flank. It was just very very disappointing. And I think when you go into a game with a extremely conservative approach like Munster did there it's a bit like counting cards right you're looking to try to boil down the game to its very bare essentials to try and hack it to get the win without necessarily engaging in the game itself as a you know we're going to put phase play together we're going to go after you you know uh, like attack for attack Munster went at it a different way and I think that's when you look at Munster over the last number of years I think it's something that's been It's been a consistent where you can often define what Munster's style is by who Munster are playing uh, rather than necessarily than what Munster are doing themselves. You look at the number of times Munster have played Leinster, for example, in big games where the approach has been quite similar to this game, where there's been a fair bit of kicking, uh, kick chase pressure, although it was different in this game where it was more longer kicking rather than box kicking. Um, and the results have been kind of the same where you feel like you've come out of it without necessarily having thrown a shot, landed a shot, not even looking like you're throwing a shot. And again, like Monster came out of it with a losing bonus point that again doesn't feel deserved at all. But I think when you go into a game with that kind of approach, you don't get any sympathy. And maybe rightly so, because y- you've approached it in a way that kind of takes away the contest from the spectator to a certain extent you are looking to try and dominate the team defensively which i think monster and they look at their defense overall I think they'll be quite happy with um, but you look at the what what let them down was the lineup mall. and like a- again that'll be the biggest disappointment because I think if monster managed to cheese out the win here with maybe they maybe they maybe they scored that try before halftime you know, that approach there, like that sequence of tap and goes, I think came almost directly from the blown line or blown mall they had where they conceded a big, big momentum turnover to connect uh, I think it was maybe maybe 10 minutes prior. I think that was their thinking there, as in, oh, what if we what if we lose the ball here? What if they what if they stuff us again? And that kind of gives you a bit of the the kind of the lowdown on, on, on you know, how this game got away from them, I think, because they certainly had a plan it wasn't a massive, it was a completely, like, as conservative a plan as I've seen, and maybe that's to do with their lack of cohesion, their, you know, no prep, no games, guys coming back at different stages, but you get no sympathy for that. Like, that that kind of loss to, to Connacht with, you know, Connacht being very abrasive, getting in fellas' faces and feeling like you came out on the wrong side of those exchanges as well, it's very, very hard for people to take, and it's not something that, you look at and go, look. There's what are the positives coming coming out of this? bar the losing bonus point, there are no positives whatsoever. It was a dour performance, and it's just an example of the last couple of games where Munster have lost those games, uh, or not even lost actually. We've like there's only been two games lost this season, but it doesn't feel that way. The last game against Caps was poor as well for uh, different reasons. It's just one of those things that you know you get the feeling at the moment where. They need something to turn back around. Because again, like I look at this game against Ulster coming off the weekend, Munster won't play that way against Ulster. But again, performance that would have to be assessed what are they doing? And th- this is the thing where you look at the, the coaches and, and what they need to get around and, and try and, and, even for the next coaches, to put a playing identity on Munster so that, like, rather than react to what the opposition are doing, to maybe make them react to you for a change.
0: I think this weekend against Ulster, it's not enough. We've, we've like I was chatting to one of the lads there today and he said, Munster are going to have to, excuse the language, but he said, just kick the shit out of Ulster at the weekend. And like he's right to a degree, don't get me wrong, but that's not going to be enough. Nowhere near it. And I said the same thing to him. I said, if Munster go out and play the way they played against Connacht, but this time come out on the other side of that same kind of scoreline, They've proved it doesn't. It's it's not like it's not a magic formula. It's not going to work week on week, and it's not going to work every week. So, it's not enough that to go in against Ulster and just get the win. Yes, the win is important. Don't get me wrong, but I really think that the fans need to see something in their style of play, and not only that, but I think the players need something in the style of play just to get them back and join rugby. Because if you look at like you you mentioned it there, you don't go out with you don't go out kind of an accidentally throw. 45 passes, and that's it. If you're playing the game, you want your hands in the ball, and it's that simple. Like nobody goes out to play a game. Like I've yet to meet anyone in this world who said the reason they got into rugby is because they love getting hit, or they love hitting rocks over and over again, or they love one up like carries. Like I was chatting to players there from the Ireland camp there to the weekend, or from the the autumn internationals and stuff like that. Um, especially forwards, and I said, "How good was it to have your hands in the ball?" And they were just like Finley Bealham for example. He was like, he loves throwing passes. He loves being first receiver. He loves those little tip-ons. He loves having to make decisions, little truck-ups. Like nobody plays the game just to truck up a ball for eighty minutes. It's a fact. And um, I think against Ulster, we're going to have to see something totally different. Now, um, we we've kind of gone on about Munster there a little bit. Last word there, very quickly. A uh, couple of contracts there, two-year deals for a lot of players. Carberry, Klein, Farrell, um, Sullivan, Kendall, and Liam Coombs, um, as well as Graham Roundtree extending his time in Munster as well. Um, in terms of Roundtree, first off, I think is a fantastic signing due to well his pedigree. First off, as a coach, but also I mentioned this during the week, like as a bargaining chip to have him for any coach and staff coming in to say like you get to work alongside the likes of Graham Roundtree. I think is a huge plus. Um, the likes of Carberry, Klein, Farrell, all these boys signing contracts as well. I think it's very good I think it's something that Munster needed I don't think it's going to um, I don't think it's going to overshadow uh, what happened there last weekend and uh, you know w- while it is great news I don't think that anyone in the press or anyone in the media is going to turn around and be like well Munster played that way but look they're keeping these guys um, the only thing I will say is um, you know all two year deals last year we saw an awful lot of one year deals so it's, it's kind of good to see this coming through, it's great to see the likes of Kindelen, um hanging on as well same saying with Aqua Sullivan, like two fantastic players as they go. I think is going to be huge next season if uh, Dale it does tip on. Uh, Klein, like anybody who knows me at this stage knows how much I rate that man. Um, I think he's, I think he's playing the best rugby of his career to be honest with you over the last couple of seasons. Um, Coombs, I think, is an interesting one um, and I think we talked about it earlier. Contract time, value for money, um, kind of. And again, I don't like seeing players as pieces of meat and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, it is a business. Um, I think he is a very good signing to keep on. And same with Carberry, um, given his injury profile and stuff like that. Like I don't know anything about it. Don't get me wrong, but I imagine own that. The, the contract Carberry resigned, and it's the last word. We'll move on now after this. But like I imagine, the contract Carbury resigned is probably on par to what we were talking about earlier in terms of you haven't shown what you can do. You know, week in week out, you have an injury profile. Like I'd say, Munster might have you know got a very good deal there as a from a club perspective, I suppose.
1: Yeah, and I, I think there's there's some of that um, in it, and I think you you've you've got to look at as you say, his injury profile, how much he's actually played. Um, I think there, there's also some of it coming back into sort of the, the COVID readjustment, in terms of you know restructuring wages, um within that. But it it's vital that he's he's there because I think you know he his, his main bargaining chip will be that if he does stay fit. He is seen as the successor to Johnny Sexton, and and that from a national point of view, that that's important. Jack Carty is making huge strides from Connacht at the moment, but I think certainly you know uh, Carberry is still seen as that. As you say, Klein, you know he's such a vital player for the for the Munster pack, and particularly in the in the tight five where they need that physicality. Um, I'm I'm a huge fan of Alex Kendall, and getting him on a two year deal is fantastic I thought he was very good um, against Conox. I thought you know he showed that he was physically able to step up to this level you know I, there was one tackle he had on John Porch that he absolutely melted him stopped him dead on the game line and, and won the turnover <clears throat> and also like Liam Coombs I, I think he is such a good player any time I've seen him he doesn't look rushed he just looks to be in the right place lovely positioning lovely timing and he ha- he is such a big man with, with pace and I think that you know Monster can do an awful lot with him and I think he could sort of grow into that sort of 13 role naturally for Munster over the next couple of years well we'll move on now and we'll have a look at Ulster. obviously their game last week
0: against Leinster called off um You know, we we kind of knew we actually knew that last week coming into the show. So we'll we'll move on a little bit. Ulster are away to Munster this weekend. It's a game, I suppose, from an Ulster perspective. And you know, coming down to Thomond Park after what's happened after the last couple of weeks, I think it's going to be a game where it's crash helmets on for a little while, head down, deal with whatever comes at you, and um, try and play after that. You know, I think the first ten minutes for Ulster. Our first 10, 15, 20 minutes for Ulster are going to be massive. And I think I mean massive is in terms of what Monster are going to throw at them. I do think Ulster have the ability to deal with an awful lot of it. Um, McCloskey missing, I think, is a big loss, especially in a game like this where you're gonna have numbers trucking at you full of metal jacket. Um, for well, probably the majority of the game, let's be honest here. Um, or as long as there's energy in the legs to do it, I think McCluskey is a big loss to Ulster, and he a lot of what Ulster do well is a result of what McCluskey does. And um, you know, he, he is that loss. But at the same time, you know, the the you have defensive leaders out there like James Hume, who's going to, you know, he he's he's just getting better and better and better. And we spoke about him. I think it was two weeks ago or three weeks ago, like how how much we rate him, and you know. I know we've not seen him in a couple of weeks now and stuff, but like I for one cannot wait to see what he does in a game like this. Um but coming down to Tonman Park, you know, Ulster, we know the kind of game they like to play. They have a brilliant lineup mall as well. Um, you know, and they will look to do to Munster, I think, what Connacht look to do as well. And that's kick to touch, maul the bejesus out of it, and look to get ahead that way as well. And you know, it has been a potent weapon for them for the last couple of seasons. I see them coming down. I see them, do I see them getting the win? I'm not too sure yet. I'll have a little think about it and I'll I'll give my opinion at the very end because we actually didn't, we didn't do that there at the end of the Munster uh, discussion, but I see them coming down and I see them putting in a huge performance. They have three games now coming up. They have Munster away. They have Saints away then and then they have Claremont at home. And we talked about Connacht there last week having three big games, you know, Munster, and then uh, Leicester, followed by Stad Francais. I think this is going to be Ulster's three big games, you know, Munster away, then Saints away, and then Claremont at home. You know, if, if they can get a win away to Munster under the conditions that Munster are going to be playing at at the moment, I think it's a massive, massive marker set down for the season. Um they're away to Saints, Franklin's Gardens is a tough place to go this year. And you know, you can look at the first 15-20 minutes of the Ulster sale game or Saints game. In uh, in Kingspan, it's not going to be the same as that. Um, it will not like it just won't. And in Claremont, you know, we'd have that discussion. How do the French travel and everything? I'm sure in a couple of weeks' time and stuff like that. But you know, there are going to be three big scalps for Ulster um, if they if they manage to come through all them. Really define what they're trying to build. Really define you know, and 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 hammer home. I suppose the the importance of keeping the players that they're keeping and looking attractive as a club and everything like that um, heading down to Tolman Park Tom what do you think that Ulster need to do in order to target Munster in order to target a win
2: in order to target a performance and, and get the upper hand over Munster they need to kick well um, which kind of sounds counterintuitive but if I'm Dan McFarland and I was at the last game that Ulster played in, in Tolman Park the Rainbow Cup game I was, I was covering that game on the radio And you could see it in the stadium that Ulster just needed to kick the ball. They were just hanging on to the ball, losing collisions, getting hurt at the breakdown. There were guys were getting drawn out of the attacking line and they were becoming increasingly easy to defend the longer a sequence of phases went on. Uh, I I think what Ulster need to do in in this game is kick uh, and, and, and kick smartly. And if they can do that, I think teams have shown this year that if you can kick well to Munster... Uh, Munster will either kick the ball right back to you in which case you've you know, reset back to zero or they will try to counterattack. and if I was to think of one area where Munster at the moment seemed to be way less than elite it would be in their uh, attacking transition and that is something I think for, for Ulster to look at uh, Munster I think will look to go after Ulster in the lineup. I think it depends on who Ulster have available with, with, with COVID and stuff like that that's a live concern for them um, if Ulster send down a weakened side uh, just due to COVID, I, I think they will lose. But if you look at the uh, their, their full-strength side, anything close to that can make this a very, very tight game, especially if they have the, uh, the, the a little tweak to what I saw the last time I saw um, Ulster playing Munster. If they can tweak that up a little bit, kick smartly, um, they can edge this game, I would say.
0: Owen, Ulster are building something pretty special. And I was chatting to James Hume about it. He said the same. Um, I was chatting to Stuart McCluskey. He said the same. They are building something that they would not, like these players would not be staying on board with Ulster for if they didn't truly believe something special was on the horizon. Do you think that this season that something special can come to fruition?
1: (laughs) I'm not sure if it's this season. I think they would need an an awful lot of things to go their way and particularly around injuries, etc. to to go their way. Um, And I think we're going to see the first real test of that maybe or not first real but we're going to see a test of that in, in Tolment this weekend because I think losing McCluskey is a big, big loss. I think he he dictates so much of their sort of their back play. And they, they need to get the likes, of, they need to keep the likes of himself for Mule and Henderson, et cetera, um, injury free and playing all their big games. Um, and particularly once they start getting into the knockout phases. I think what they have done is they have they've got themselves um an excellent um depth chart, but I don't think they necessarily have the quality as they start going down that depth chart just yet. There's guys, I think they're type five. I think they need to maybe add to that. They've got the likes of um, Tom O'Toole there, who's a, an international. Rob Herring has sort of slipped down the pecking order, but he is so vital in terms of their, their line-out plat- platform. But I think they need to add a couple more to those. And having the likes of Jack McGrath coming back is a, is a big boost to that, but I think they need to get maybe one, maybe two more carriers into that and some and find some sort of a backup for McCluskey um at 12 to to really be able to have that depth to challenge um in in the knockouts against the big and best teams. Tom, one of the biggest battles I'm really looking forward to and for a forward or an ex forward, I should say, to
0: say this it's probably sacrilege, don't get me wrong, but one of the best battles I'm looking forward to this weekend, if they're both named, obviously, because that's a concern, but would be Michael Lowry versus Mike Haley. Both 15s just love counter-attacking rugby. I know Haley didn't get a chance there in the last game or whatever, but like we know he can counter-attack on loose kicks and stuff like that. Michael Lowry, live wire, ability to play a 10. He is a playmaker. He is lightning quick. I can't wait to watch
2: both of them going at it. That'll be very interesting. That'll be a very interesting little battle, I think, actually. You look at Mike Lowry. Uh, for a guy like as in, you know, he, you may look at his size, like as a, as a primary playmaker, might count against him to an extent. But you look at his ability to play a kind of a Damien McKenzie-style role of fullback to, with the with range of skills he has. He's very evasive. He's very agile. But he's a, he's a, he's a good tactician. I think he's got that in him as well that's something I feel would be a big factor in, in in how this game plays out, actually, because I think you look at, you know, where I feel it'll be very, very tight will be in the, the, the set of collisions and phase play, I think. You know, bar defensive errors will be... I, I, I don't see a massive margin of difference there. But it'll come down to how well your, your secondary playmakers, I think, are able to dictate this game once the ball starts to go to space. And if you can control the territory, I think, and and tactically move this game around from the secondary playmaker kind of role set, that wider position, I think that that is uh, an area of the game that could dictate the winning and losing of it because the right decision-making there, and again, the last time I saw Ulster, Mike Lowry didn't have a great game because he was a little bit too focused on running the ball and counter attacking with the ball in hand as opposed to taking what might have been seen as the conservative option at the time, but would have been the right decision in the moment of the game. Uh, I think if they've learned from that, this could be a very, very tight battle. And with, with those two guys leading the way with regards to the, I suppose, the main tactical battle in this game, those two guys would be right at the forefront.
0: Watching Michael Lowry there the last couple of weeks and kind of I've gone back and watched Portion's games as well. What you said there about a secondary playmaker I think is bang on the money because what I was trying to do is just get the wide angles and just watch the game play as as you know in the, in those wide angles just the talk that he has coming through like I don't know how he's able to speak on Sunday or Monday mornings the amount to talk he does on the pitch and like we all know like it's not just talk it's roaring and the communication he gives through to, to well his defensive line in front of him indeed but also an attack just to just to just to Spot these gaps to spot where the mismatches and then obviously have the pace to get around. But like his lungs burn and he's still getting those calls in. I think he is a fantastic, a fantastic playmaker. And I I, I really I really can't wait to see what happens between him and Haley if they're both named. I think it would be. I don't want to say a travesty, but I certainly think it would be a disappointment not to get the chance to see them go up against each other in a, in a nice open game and a dry pitch in Tolman Park. Um, own the scrum battle. I don't think is going to be as important uh, in this game because I do think it's going to come down to the line-out. Now, Tom touched on it there. Munster, line-out team. Ulster, a very good line-out team. Who do you see coming on top of the set-piece?
1: Um, as you say, I think, it, I think it depends on the team that that uh, Ulster bring down. I think if Ulster come down with close to a, a full-strength team, then they're going to put a lot of pressure I I really like um, Rob Herring's throwing. I think it's so accurate, so good. He gets such a lovely ball flight on it, um, it in his throws. That um, And it's become so integral to as the starter play and to be able to launch the all, which is it's such a weapon for, for Ulster. Um, and I think if Ulster can do that and can maintain it, um, that line-out integrity, then they have a platform that they can work off. Um, along with, as, as you've talked about, I think the sort of transition play is going to be um, important with that. But they have they have injury problems. They've taken um, Declan Moore from Munster and he's joined them on a, a temporary basis um, and filled in. So I think if Herring isn't there, they may have problems with their, their line-out. It may not be as um, efficient as they would like and that that may cost them. Um and I think it, it will be something I, I expect Munster to come back with a some sort of a response to the last couple of games. And I would expect them to, to have the likes of Omani, Byrne, etc. coming back into the team. And I think that gives um, Munster maybe a bit more in terms of the counter uh, jump uh, against the likes of Ulster's nine out. And I think that may put a bit of pressure on it. But again, I expect both defences to, uh, to, to be pretty close to, Countering each other in this, and I'm not expecting it to be a, a huge difference in, in scoreline. Right. So I think we've spoken enough about the game to come. The only thing we
0: haven't done is give our own predictions. Um, Tom, I'm going to jump to you first. Who do you see coming out on top?
2: Uh, if Ulster are significantly weakened, I, I think you'll see a, a bonus point Munster win. If it's close to full strength, I think it'll be very, very tight, but I would say maybe. Munster in and around five points better I'd say Right Owen go for it
1: I like Tom I, if, if it is full strength side and available um, on both sides I would say Monster um, by less than three Well for the
0: second week in a row I am going to disagree with both of you and look how well it worked for us last time um, but no I think if, they, if they're going to go or if they're able to go two full strength teams I'm going to go with Ulster coming out on top if, if it's a case that Ulster can't bring a full-strength team, then, yeah, I'll go with Munster. But if, if it's like for like, I'm going to go with an Ulster team coming out on top. I know I technically went for both teams there a little bit, but it, it just depends on who's name. But a full-strength team, I'm going to go with Ulster. Right, we'll move on to the questions, folks. Thanks a million for sending in all the questions this week. Uh, they were heavily Munster-focused, I suppose. Um, but we'll try and stay away from three out of three there. Um, the first one I'm going to actually take this one myself and it says what does Nathan Doak need to focus on to get into the Ireland squad and I think it's an absolutely fantastic question um, a lot of time people think or people believe that because a player is playing well you know they should get an Ireland jersey and the logic is sound don't get me wrong but there's a lot more to it than just saying they're playing well you have to look at the players who are ahead of them and I don't mean in my eyes or in your eyes or anybody's eyes the only eyes that matter is, is Andy Fair excuse me, sorry, is Andy Farrell. And at the moment, Jemison Gibson Park is his number one. After that, it's going to be Connor Murray. And after that, at the moment, I think it's a sh- straight shootout between Craig Casey and Kieran Marmion. Now, if you're looking at what he needs to do to get ahead of those players, I think the first thing he needs to do is look at the game plan for Ireland. And does he fit that kind of style of play? Now, I firmly believe that Nathan Doak has the ability and has the skill set to play the way Ireland have been playing in the last couple of games. I I fully believe that he has the maturity to do it as well. He was in camp um, a couple of times, so he's clearly, like he knows what's expected and he knows what's needed. Um, He's in a four-year deal with Ulster at the moment, so I certainly think that... Not only do Ulster obviously have have the belief in him, but like, I mean, four years playing with what Ulster are building at the moment, I think he's on the right path to play for Ireland and he has the ability to play that game plan. Um, people may think that he needs to get ahead of Cooney on a regular basis to start for Ireland or to be, you know, in contention for Ireland. I actually don't, and this is kind of a strange one, but bear with me, I actually don't believe that to be necessarily true. If you look at who Farrell has deemed to be his starting nine for Ireland in the last number of games, he's not the starting nine for Leinster when, when they do play. Um, that's down to McGrath. So I think the idea of having to out and out, um, or oust, I suppose, out and out oust Cooney from the nine position isn't something he needs to do because you know, it, it's just not the case at the moment. Um, But I do think he needs to be getting as many minutes as Cooney it's very difficult for him because Cooney is a game-winner. Like He kicks very, very well. Um, he makes breaks. He scores tries. He has a lot in his arsenal. And I believe that if Do it gets the chance that he, he will do that. But I think in terms of Ulster, he needs to be at least on the same minutes as Cooney. I don't think he needs to make Cooney a bench player because I just don't think that's the way it's working at the moment. But I do think that he does need to get a lot of, as many minutes under the belt as Cooney and, um, you know, it'll mirror that that, that situation in Leinster. The last thing I think he needs to work on, or not even work on, sorry, but just keep fine-tuning, I suppose I should say, is the box kick. And people can, you know, people will look back at the way Ireland played, and they look back with romanticism, and they look back with nostalgia, and they say, oh, they threw the ball around, and the props were passing, and Jesus, I don't think a ball was kicked. There was plenty of balls kicked in, in those games. Um, the only game that really, that didn't really feature a Box kick was Japan, and there was still four, five, six in the minute. And the reason that, you know, it faded out was because Ireland didn't necessarily need to in order to make ground with ball in hand, or to make ground, you know, they were able to do it with ball in hand. If you look at the start of the Japan game, they're still box kicked, and it's only 15, 20 minutes into the game once they had a feel of it that they were in their 22. Jameson Gibson Park shaped box and then decided nothing. They just played out the backs. So, Ireland are still reliant well not reliant I don't, I don't want to say that but like it's still a huge part of their game it's a huge part of any team's game Um, and if you look at the the nines in you know the pecking order you have Jameson Gibson Park first you have Murray second in my eyes but in terms of box kicking you know Conor Murray is one of the best box kicking nines in the world and there will be people now listening to this and they might be rolling their eyes and saying, Jesus, like I don't rate Conor Murray for X, Y, Z and fine. like That's someone's opinion. That's no problem. But like when it comes down to box kicking, his box kicking is pretty much on the money every time. Um, Jemison Gibson's packs is, Gibson is very good and it's getting there. And it's getting to the 11 of Murray. I don't think it's there yet, but it is certainly on the way there. And his choice of box kicking is certainly getting better too. And um, we saw that in the Autumn Internationals as well. But I think Doak needs to really nail down that box kick. Um, you know, get it to the level of Murray, keep practicing that it's at that level where, you know, if you need to drop it 25 yards on a sixpence, that, you know, nine times out of ten, he's gonna be in and around that sixpence, you know. Um, so I think that's what Nathan Doak has to do um or needs to just continue building on. I suppose I do think it's a matter of time. I I really do think it's a matter of time before we see him in an Ireland jersey. Um He's a phenomenal talent, and once he gets that opportunity, I think he's going to play in a way that's going to make it very hard to, to overrule that. But that's my thoughts anyway on Nathan Doak. We we'll move on to the next question. I'm going to jump to you on for this one, um, and it's something that actually came up during the week as well on Twitter. And someone doesn't believe that you rate James Ryan, but you know I don't. That's not the case, and no, that's not the case. It's just his role for Ireland. That uh, <laughs> it's just his role for Ireland that you don't agree with. So. Um, in your opinion, what should James Ryan's role for, that's a tough sentence to say what should James Ryan's role for Ireland be and what needs to change in order for that role to to appear?
1: You see I, I don't think it's necessarily that his role needs to change but I think it's it's people need to understand what his what his role is and how it, how it maybe doesn't make him the I suppose, perfect um I suppose backup captain or long-term captain to sexton. And I think like you, you look at second rows within this and I think and in the modern game and you you talk about a tight head and a loose head and like you're you're you going with general categorizations here, but like you look you look at a tight head lock and you're you're looking at someone who is generally a big beast of a man, six foot nine, six foot ten. 20 stone is just going to absolutely power through the tight head side of the scrum is going to set up your your mall is not necessarily going to be that much of a, a line out jumper but is going to give you absolute power coming through. and then you look at your loose headlock who is going to be maybe a bit more mobile, a bit more dynamic in the carry etc. And I think where what happens with James Ryan is that he falls in between the two in that he has the size going towards the size, but not quite at that elite level in terms of a tight headlock, but he doesn't have the dynamic impact of a loose headlock. And what, But what he does do really, really well within the Irish setup and within the, the, the Leinster setup is he, his work rate is unbelievable. He, he's nearly guaranteeing he is going to have 10 tackles, 10 carries going through each game. And he is going to do that game on game. He's going to hit his rocks. He's going to do that donkey work that doesn't necessarily get seen or appreciated by everyone, but is appreciated by his team and the coaches around it. And I think what's happening is, I think the biggest thing that I could say to people is, tell me the last time that you remember James Ryan actually making a big impact onto a game. When when has he done something? Was it a, a big... Steel in terms of a jackal that you see from Ty Byrne? Is it a massive carry um, that you maybe see from a lion baird? What's what is there? And I think he his performances go under the radar. And when you look at what Ireland have done in terms of how they've moved things around, CJ Stander also gave you that work rate. He also had that and he but he had a big carry on him as well. And when they replaced CJ with Jack Conan, it's not a like for like. So you didn't get another big carrier. You got a wide carrier. And Farrell went and changed things around, and he managed to put um, Porter and Kelleher into the front row. And he's got dynamic carriers. Now, In at the moment, James Ryan seems to be in there to do that donkey work in terms of doing the tackles and the rucks and the, and the carries. But I think if you look at someone like Ryan Baird, who can come in and can make huge carries, big impacts, you've got Ian Henderson who can do the same. You've got Ty Byrne who can influence the game in different ways. It's these guys coming through, and even the likes of Tom Hearn, etc., cetera, coming through. They're the guys that are going to pressure. Can Does Farrell need someone else who can get in there and play to his game, add a, a sort of a dynamic impact, add a carry, Add the passing ability in that, that we haven't seen from James Ryan in in the recent future. There was a big reason that James Ryan didn't be caught, didn't go on the Lions Tour. Some of that was down to injury and, and whatever else, but a lot of it was down to he is not that dy- either dynamic lock or, or a big enough lock to go with Gatland. 100% fair play, and I don't think anybody can
0: really argue with that argument there or that description of James Ryan's role for Ireland and what needs to be changed or maybe just tweaked uh, to improve that role itself. Last question goes to you, Tom. Uh, a lot of talk about Dominic Morris joining across from Saracens for anyone who doesn't know who he is. He's a midfield player. To me, it would insinuate that De, De is leaving the club and probably means that Farrell would change his role, maybe push to twelve. Uh, what are your thoughts on this move? Do you see it coming to fruition or do you see it kind of being, you know, again, just
2: talk? Uh, well, it's one of those ones where, you know, you look at the player in question and it, it doesn't seem like a massive click name. There's not a whole lot of value in just generating kind of a, a signing of, of like, like Ollie Morris it reminds me of uh, that, that kind of uh, Matt Gallagher signing from Saracens. Uh, Dominic Morris would be uh, Irish qualified his brother Ollie Morris was in with the Irish under twenties there. Uh, I think it was either last season or the season before. Uh, he's a kind of an outside centre style player for 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 Saracens. Good technical player. Like you look, you look at, at Saracens in general. They don't really, they, they don't really bring through a lot of dud players. You know, he's a guy who really gets the game. He's a he's a good athlete. Uh, he wouldn't be the same sort of physical profile as a Damien Delende. He'd be a smaller, more mobile player. But I think uh, if you look at a guy like that, his name being mentioned, that would suggest as well to me that things are maybe a little bit further along with the uh, director of rugby or head coach uh, signing than uh, maybe publicly known. But I would say if Monster are looking at a guy like that, who ostensibly is going to be maybe competing with a Liam Coombs, for example, that it would look like Chris Farrell might be moving in a slot. I think that could really suit him. But it would also suggest that Damien dilende might not be at Munster at the end of this season, which I think. Look, I think everybody's, you know, in, on this podcast, I think would be surprised to see uh, Damien dilende here beyond the end of, of of this season. But you look at at signings like that. Uh, I think Matt Gallagher would be a kind of a good uh, a good kind of example, a, a good kind of a, a comparison. I would say Gallagher is playing really, really well up until that really nasty um, shoulder injury he picked up. That put him out of out of out of competition for three or four months in a really highly trafficked position for for Munster in the back three, you know, and you've got two international wingers and a guy like Mike Haley who is just really really consistent and and a guy who certainly back then was playing incredibly well and probably still is, but you know you look at it, you need to be playing and impressing every week to dislodge, so that would be a kind of a good a, a good example as to what type of guy uh, you know Dominic Morris could be. Uh, he's a fellow who I would be surprised now if his name is being mentioned I've heard it around a few days ago Uh, I I think he'd be a pretty decent signing you bring him in if he's Irish qualified uh, and and just kind of use him in that kind of outside centre role I think it looks as well a little bit more like uh, Munster making kind of wider squad decisions especially Uh, you know coming up into the new season
0: Apologies folks we seem to have lost Tom there Um, you know Wi-Fi over the last couple of months I think or after the last couple of years I should say I think we've all found out one thing we will have is definitely technical issues but we'll come back to Dominic Morris next week perhaps and we might just touch on that and finish off that answer Um, Overall that's it from us tonight folks thanks a million again for listening um thanks a million for sending your questions and for engaging with us over the last couple of weeks it's been fantastic so far and the feedback has been unbelievable if you've enjoyed it folks please feel free to tell a friend or share it on your social media sites whatever it may be be it twitter instagram whatever it is um it is genuinely the easiest way for the page to grow and as we've seen over the last couple of weeks you know it's, it's all thanks to you that this is getting bigger and bigger so thanks a million for that um we'll see you next week for the next for the next podcast and if again you know sending questions during the week anything that crops up that that tickles your fancy or catches your interest send in a question and we'll do our best answers <laughs>